0: We are studying the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're getting towards the end. We're in chapter 21, and today we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. If you have a Bible, open there. If you have an electronic device you'd rather follow along on, uh, navigate there. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. The topic, while describing the city that comes down from heaven that will be our home in eternity, John remarks that there will be no more sea. The title of our message, Surfless City, Here We Come. (laughs) That's an A-list title. That deserves more than that, but that's all right. (laughs) Father, thank you for our morning. Uh, We do appreciate the opportunity to worship you. Singing to you, Lord, is such a joy, whether we sing with all of our hearts or whether we just listen to the others, Lord. Um, it reminds us that we were made to worship you, to know you, to love you, to, to be in fellowship with you. It also prepares our hearts, Lord, to receive your word. It, it's sort of a, a submissive attitude, Lord, an act that says we're ready to hear from you, we're ready to listen to you. And today, Lord, you're going to say so many precious things to us, uh, it's almost hard to believe i pray we would leave encouraged but more than that that we would leave a little bit more like jesus than when we came in we thank you and we praise you in jesus name and those who agreed said amen some of you ladies may remember playing the board game mystery date the object of the game is to be ready for a date by acquiring three matching color-coded cards to assemble an appropriate outfit your outfit must match the outfit of the date at the mystery door the date is revealed by spinning the door handle and opening the plastic door on the game board. I know you're wondering, how does he know that much about the game? But. <laughs> the five possible dates are the formal dance date, the bowling date, the beach date, the skiing date, and the dud. You lost if you opened the door to the dud, more commonly known as the bum from Mystery Day. If you're raising daughters, you'll meet several of these individuals along the way. (laughs) The revelation removes all mystery from the date who awaits when the door opens for us to eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ is our heavenly bridegroom. He is robed in righteousness and he has granted us robes of righteousness which we can further adorn as our wedding gowns as we walk with him this side of heaven. Today we're gonna learn that we are so loved by him, so precious to him, that he prepares a city for us full of fellow saved saints free from any citizens that could in any way detract from our joy. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, a bride as precious as you must be showcased in the appropriate city. And number two, a bride as precious as you must be separated from inappropriate citizens. Verses 1 and 2, let's look at the showcase for the bride. Now, one list of the top five most beautiful cities in the world has Venice, Paris, Prague, Lisbon, and Rio de Janeiro. Another list, Cape Town, Rio, Istanbul, Paris, and Rome. Still another list, Dubai, New York, Shanghai, Rome, and Paris. No cities in Central California made any list of the world's most beautiful cities. Apparently, no one's ever been to Arvin. Is anybody from Arvin this morning? Don't don't lie. No. Okay. Oh, one person. Okay. The most beautiful city in the universe has not yet been seen. Well, it has been seen by one person, by the Apostle John in the Revelation. We get a glimpse of it in our text, and we'll get a slightly more detailed look next time we are together. It's the new Jerusalem. Not a Jerusalem on earth rebuilt in some manner, but one that is coming down from heaven to earth. And so verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, Also, there was no more sea. Let's start with the passing away of the current heaven and earth. The apostle Peter tells you how this is going to happen. Let me give you uh, three verses from 2 Peter 3, verses 7, 10, and 11, portions of them that explain this. Peter writes and he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. All these things will be dissolved. For you who are more scientific, Dr. Henry Morris puts it like this. After terrestrial matter has been converted either into the vapor state or more probably into pure energy, God will once again exercise his mighty powers of creation and integration and the new heavens and the new earth will appear out of the ashes, so to speak, of the old. Now there's an ongoing argument about whether or not the current creation will be totally replaced or completely restored. There are Christians who are somewhat critical of we who emphasize the rapture. They claim that we are escapists who can't wait for the earth to burn while all the while God wants it to be restored. Well, that's just not true, not at all. We believe God will restore the earth. He'll restore it, though, during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It's during the thousand years that we read of things like streams breaking out in the desert. The earth will undergo a complete restoration during that thousand years. We will be with the Lord, aiding him in its restoration. So we are totally on board for a restored earth during the millennium. After the millennium, before eternity begins, the restored earth and the heavens will be replaced. A restored earth is simply not good enough for eternity. Uh, Pastor David Guzik said something I thought was profound. He wrote... Our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state and wish Adam would never have done what he did. But we fail to realize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man and that we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of redemption, not innocence. Our perfect state in the future is going to require a new heaven and a new earth. Now let's think of what it means to have a whole new heaven. And we're not talking about heaven where God dwells, heaven with a capital H. We mean the heavens above us, the earth's atmosphere, and what we call space. I love a good sunrise or sunset. Meteor showers are cool. So are blood moons. But I could live without hurricanes and tornadoes and lightning. You're all following the rough fire and the other fires up in the mountains and wondering, where they're going to head next. Lightning strike started that. Lots of terror is generated in the heavens as they exist today. Beyond that, we remember that currently the heavens above us are the headquarters of Satan and his demons. He is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. His presence has really fouled up the atmosphere. Uh, you wouldn't want to... He, he's like if you, if you rent... If you're a homeowner and you rent your house, uh, he's a bad renter. You're gonna have some repairs to do after you're done. And so uh, the heavens need to be redone. We could similarly meditate upon a new earth. There's a lot about the earth to fear and loathe. Sure, there are beautiful places, but mostly places you're gonna fall off and die uh, if you get too close and then be eaten by animals at the bottom. Uh, So those who want to appeal to nature must not understand its cruelty. Nature can be awful in its ravages. It's amoral, killing at will. Now for the really big question, why is there no more sea? This genuinely seems to bother us. With all the things going on in the Revelation, people are troubled by the lack of oceans on the new earth. There's always questions about this. In the end, we're not told why there is no more sea, and so anything we say about why would be a guess that we really can't substantiate we take it at face value. Instead, I want to try to tap into why it troubles us. Location is super important to us right now. Realtors and developers always say when they're asked what are the top three uh, you know, uh, um, reasons for buying a property, they always give location as all three. They say location, location, location to emphasize how important it is to the value. Some of the most valuable property in the world is beachfront property. You'll pay a lot more for a home if it gives you even a tiny peek at the ocean. Some instinct in us causes us to refer to beachfronts and islands as paradise. Maybe this is why no more sea bothers us so much. Are they paradise? Not even close. Paradise is to be with Jesus. The words, no more see" remind me that paradise can never be a place. It's a person. In eternity, we won't be thinking location. We'll be thinking Lord. And seriously, any place in heaven is better than the best place on earth. In fact, there's no comparison. Think about the place you like the most, the place where you relax or, you know, go for vacation or whatever it is, the place that you want your go-to spot. It's a ghetto compared to heaven. It's the worst place in, in the universe. It's, there's no comparing it. And so uh, there's not going to be any more sea, um, at least not on the earth. Now, I'm open to the possibility that it could be whole planets that are dedicated to surfing and scuba diving. Uh, but as far as the earth is concerned, no sea there. So you're going to have to do some traveling to get your ocean fun. Verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The New Jerusalem is quite literally the crowning jewel of the new creation because in subsequent verses we'll see that it is made mostly of jewels and precious stones. It will come down out of heaven from God. That means it's being constructed in heaven and it'll be moved into place when the time comes. Probably have one of those signs on it that says, Wide Load. <laughs> Apparently, there are things I think are funny that no one else really, you know, I'm just, I'm just not at your level of humor yet. I, I'm, I'm building there. I'm trying to get there. It's interesting that in chapter 17 and 18, we read about Babylon. That city originally was an attempt to build from the earth upwards to reach God, spiritually speaking. But fallen man cannot pick himself up. God must reach down to him, and he has in the person and work of Jesus Christ as God becoming man, to go to the cross, to die in our place for our sins, that we might be saved. The new Jerusalem is being prepared in heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the city is not the bride you are if you're a Christian. The city is an adornment that reveals the wonder of his love for you. It's the place that Jesus has been away preparing for us collectively and for each of us individually. It will be the real estate in which your mansion is being constructed. You know how housing tracts all have names. Your mansion in heaven is being constructed in the new Jerusalem. We'll see in later chapters that uh, we're not the only, or later in this chapter, rather, we're not the only residents of the city. Other saints will live there from other eras. For example, we're told in the book of Hebrews concerning Abraham, he looked for the city whose builder and maker is God. So he too looked forward to the new Jerusalem. Takes nothing away from us to have other saints living there. In fact, it emphasizes the Lord's love for us. Now, before we get lost in the beauty of this new Jerusalem later in the chapter, the Lord takes time to establish it is merely a showcase for his bride, the church. It's a showcase for you and I and all those saved from the day of Pentecost right up to the rapture. It's the most beautiful showcase possible because we are so very precious to Jesus. Don't get me wrong. He is precious to us. The universe is not about us. It doesn't revolve around us. Nevertheless, the Lord is all excited to put us on display. It gives him pleasure to draw attention to his finished work in us. The Lord can't wait to introduce us in eternity. He saved us, and then he committed himself to setting us apart, to performing a good work in us every moment of every day. We talked about this last week. Jesus is constantly at work, even against our resistance and faithlessness, to bring us to perfection. He's described as washing us by the water of the word of God. Sometimes I think we're like a, a, you know, a dog or a cat that doesn't like to take a bath. You ever have an animal like that that didn't like baths? They're really difficult to wash. Jesus is not, Gene, I'm going to wash you. I'm going to cleanse you throughout your life. Even though you want to fight against this, this is my work in you. And then we will be presented without spot or blemish to our heavenly father. No one's going to be presented in heaven. And Jesus said, well, if I had another 10 minutes, uh, I would have finished. You know, it's just, there's no deadline that he's not going to be able to meet. When the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, when it's done, we're done. I want to be done, don't you? I can't begin to imagine how beautiful each of you will be in eternity, let alone myself. It seems fantastic, but it's true. Now, we may have certain self-images or images. You might think you're handsome or beautiful, but you're really not. Not from an eternal point of view. Uh, you 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 might be intelligent, you might be smarter than the next guy. But you're really not. Uh, you're, you're, you're part of a fallen race. You're not adequate to go to heaven. You can't really be in the presence of God. You're not the way God intended you, but Jesus came and He died for you, and he rose from the dead, and he says, "I'm now going to restore you to that place. I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to remake you as a new creation. And one day we will all be done. And I, I want to be done, don't you? I mean, there's a lot of work. Some of you, as you get older, a lot more work, uh, you know, needs to be done. I, um, uh, a lot of times I, when I, when you don't laugh at my jokes, I say something about it to make sure I'm speaking English uh, and that I haven't moved into gibberish, you know, and stuff. And I always think, well, if I see Gene walking up the center aisle, I know I've, I've lost my mind and stuff. And so it's just, people get old. They get gnarly and stuff. But Jesus is working on us, and we're going to be raised into glory. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. That's who we are right now, and that's a glorious thing. But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. That means we, we can't really fathom what it's going to be like. But we do know that when he is revealed, when Jesus comes for us, we shall be like him. And so this side of eternity, we have a hard time really fully understanding what it's like uh, to be finished by Jesus, but we can see glimpses of it in his resurrection body and his resurrection life, and we long for that. And the Lord is saying, hey, I'm building you a city to show you off because my work in you is going to be really incredible. I mean, look at the universe. I don't want to stay on this point too much, but it's blowing my mind this week. Think of the universe, and it's fallen, but think of the glory of the things, you know, the canyons and the space and the, you know, the mountains and all of this kind of stuff, and you think, wow, that's fantastic. And sometimes you think, I wonder what it looked like before the fall. It must have been even wonderful. And God says, yeah, all of that is a background. It's a backdrop. When, if God is taking a picture of you at the Grand Canyon, he doesn't care about the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is nothing to God. He wants the picture of you. The Grand Canyon is just a showcase to show how much he loves you. Eternity is going to be like that as well. Without taking anything away from Jesus Christ, he loves us that much and is going to show us off. Now, a bride as precious as you has to be separated from inappropriate citizens, verses 3 through 8. A highlight of the New Jerusalem will be that there's no low life. All those who rejected God's grace and his offer of salvation through faith in Jesus will be excluded as citizens. Verse three, I heard a voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. God's original purpose for the human race will be restored to enjoy a personal face-to-face relationship with him. Everything that occurs between the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 until Revelation 21 is to redeem and prepare a people to enjoy fellowship with God forever. Charles Spurgeon wrote, and he said, I don't think the glory of Eden lay in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit. But its glory lay in this, that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege, that he had companionship with the Most High. So the question is, do you enjoy God? We talk about serving God, about fearing God, about obeying God, about submitting to God, about praying to God, about giving to God. Those should all be done in a context of enjoying His presence in our lives. Those aren't the primary things. The primary thing is to be yoked with him, enjoying his presence, doing those things. You say it's hard to enjoy his presence in suffering, in struggle. Well, that's precisely when you can enjoy him the most. Because imagine going through suffering or struggle without God. That's the truly scary thing. It it makes no sense to me when people, uh, you know, see suffering, especially non-believers, they say, well, I can't believe in God because he allows people to suffer. If you Minus God from that equation, what have you gained? You're so far into the negative side of things, you've gained nothing, you've lost everything. There's no possible comfort or hope or joy if you remove God. Instead, you have Jesus who knows what it's like to be human, who knows what it's like to be tempted, who knows what it's like to suffer, who knows what it's like to be treated cruelly, to die, and who can assure you that... He is working in and through your life and that all things will work together for the good because you love him and are called according to his commandments. And so you, you, you don't really want to remove God from suffering. In fact, you want to infuse your suffering with him and enjoy him in it. Verse four, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there should be no more death or sorrow or crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Life today is characterized by death, sorrow, and pain. It produces tears and crying. Jesus will wipe away every tear. That's a great summary of that verse. Have you ever had someone wipe away your tears when you were crying? It's a tender gesture that only someone who is very close to you should attempt. It's a symbol of their desire to alleviate your sorrow. They want to wipe away your tears as if they could wipe away your sorrow. But with Jesus, it's not symbolic. It's sincere in the truest sense. All of your pain and suffering will come to an abrupt end. Every tear emphasizes each one, not just crying in general. Just as the hairs of your head are numbered, so your tears are counted. They are saved in God's bottle, we read in the Old Testament. And God understands and knows the situation for each one of them. It's impossible for me to begin to fathom what it means to be without sorrow. We are so fallen that it's impossible to understand certain things, but we can take them as truth because of their source, which is God. I will be without sorrow of any kind over any person or experience or circumstance. I know that's true, even though I can't imagine how it's true. Verse five, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are faithful and true. Behold is a great word. I think it should only be used by God or of God to describe things he's done. You behold them and are astonished and amazed. And that's really the theme of this whole section. Jesus is saying, one day I'm going to reveal you. I'm going to show you to a universe. I'm going to say, behold, look at my work in these individuals. All things are going to be made new in eternity. For new, a better word would be fresh. We might use the expression brand new. The sense you get is that all things in the new creation are going to remain fresh as if they were always brand new. You know that new car smell? Whenever you get a new car, people always comment. and They say, oh man, new car smell. You might want to warn them not to d- breathe so deeply because there is some evidence now that new car smell is toxic. I'm quoting this. I'm serious. I'm helping you out here. The smell results from the release of off-gassing, out-gassing of various volatile organic compounds. And many man-made volatile organic compounds are known to cause various health issues. I see the ad now by S. Lambobian and Varlavi. Have you bought a new car? You have breathing difficulty? Call us. Cost you nothing. We'll sue on your behalf. You'll be part of a class action lawsuit where you get 50 cents, and they get $5 million. So anyway, now, if you really do like the smell, you can uh, buy a bottle of new car smell fragrance. It's a real thing. You can get it, uh, just Google it, and uh, you can get your you know, 1980 Sentra to smell like a brand new car. And people go, man, wh- where's that new car smell coming from? Hey, not only is it new car smell, but it's non-toxic. I'm always just trying to help you guys out. There, uh, things are really great, though, when they're brand new, aren't they? And they immediately start to deteriorate, but not so in heaven. All things there, though they will go on eternally, will remain fresh. There won't be any ruins in heaven, no, you know, no, no wrecks. Everything will be fresh and new, uh, like the moment it was recreated or created, and we will experience it that way, too. We won't get tired of things will be excited about everything. And then he said to me, write, for these words are faithful and true. John was called upon to write. Imagine if he had the attitude that his writing wasn't a ministry, that it wasn't his gift. Sometimes you have this in churches. You know, people are so into what my gift is and what my calling is and, and that, that other opportunities to serve come up and you think, well, that's not, I'm not gifted to do that. I'm not called. Uh, John, you know, could as well. I'm on the island of Patmos. I work in salt mines. I've got open cuts. The only water I have is salt water. They sting and they burn, and you want me to write? Uh, That's that's not really my calling. I am, after all, an apostle or that kind of a thing. I'm exaggerating, but just it's true sometimes. We need to just expand our thinking. We need a, a Christian situational awareness, figure out what's going on around us, and just do what needs to be done regardless whether it's your gifting or your calling. You should have situational awareness and do what needs to be done. Now, God is faithful, and that means he'll bring each of his saints to this city to live with him. We fall, we fail, he remains faithful. He who has begun a good work in us, he's gonna see it through to the end. You're not gonna live next door to a vacant mansion in eternity and look over and say, hey, that was Gene's mansion, but he didn't quite make it. Now it's, you know, just sits there vacant. That's not going to happen. And God is true. Now, there is a use of the word true that we've lost. It means to make level or square or balanced or concentric. Let me give you an example. Bicycle wheels have adjustments on each spoke. A cyclist adjusts them to true the rotation of the wheel. If you ever, you're riding your bike, you hit a curb, and then you look down and the wheel is kind of wobbly. And and, um, you can adjust the spokes to true that wheel. It's in this sense of the word true that everything God has promised and said will not just come to pass, but it will be true to his highest nature and character. I'm getting ahead of myself, but let me say this about our mansions in the heavenly city. They each will be true to your individual personality. All things they are made from and all things in them will be true to you in giving you the greatest sense of the Lord's love for you. Verse six, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Jesus identifies himself as the alpha and the omega four times in this book. They are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is everything there is to say or to communicate. He is the fullness of life. Jesus promises the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He first made that offer in the gospel of John, It is the offer of the Spirit to those who receive him as Savior and Lord. In eternity, we will have the river of living water in the new Jerusalem as we see. We will be totally refreshed, totally satisfied. Drinking and thirst are common pictures of God's supply and man's spiritual need as well. Drinking is an action, but it's an action of receiving. Like faith, it is doing something, but it is not a merit-earning work in itself. And so uh, this speaks to non-believers. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. It speaks to the thirst that you have that can only be filled in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We sometimes talk about it as eternity in your heart or as a hole in your heart. Thirst is another good way. You're, you're hungry for something. You're searching for something. Well, that something is a someone. It's Jesus Christ. Verse seven, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Believers are overcomers. We look at that and we think overcomers anonymous, that it's a difficult struggle and we may not make it. But we overcome, First John 5 says, by faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's just simple faith in him, believing what he said he will do and drawing upon his strength. And we are overcomers. You inherit all things the same way a son would be left with all the possessions of his father, only in our case, we'll enjoy it with our heavenly father. Significantly absent from eternity will be all those who rejected salvation by grace alone through faith. Verse eight, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now this is a listing of things characteristic of non-believers. The mention here is intended to encourage us we will be free from these things in eternity since no non-believers will be around to exhibit them. So a lot of people read this and they think, well, you know, now it's like, hey, if you're doing any of these things, man, you're, you know, you got to be really careful as a Christian. Well, obviously you shouldn't be doing any of these things if you're a Christian, but what the context is here is the Lord is saying this city is going to be an amazing place where You don't have to worry about or think about certain things that you worry about and think about today, and let me give you a list of just some of them. And so let's enter into that. First of all, cowardly, in the context of this book, refers to people who refused to follow Jesus because they were afraid of persecution and martyrdom. This is spiritual cowardice that gives evidence there was no presence of the Holy Spirit who grants boldness. And so there won't be any spiritual cowards uh, in heaven. Unbelieving indicates there is sufficient evidence to believe, but there's a conscious refusal to do so. It pains us today to see those we loved reject the gospel in the face of overwhelming evidence of the truth. In eternity, it will be populated by believers, uh, and there won't be that pain. Abominable means to incite disgust. Sin is bad enough, but there are some things people do that are more disgusting. I mean, you're, those of you who still read newspapers or follow the news, don't you sometimes think, oh, man, really? I mean, it's just something that's so gross, that's so wicked, you almost can't even imagine it. In heaven, there will be no waking up to awful atrocities that people perpetrate on one another. There won't be any mass murders or serial killers or things like this that, that you know, dominate our world today. ISIS won't be beheading people, those kinds of things. Murderers reminds us of increasing violence among men and mankind. The New Jerusalem will never devolve into violence of any kind. It will be a perfect society from start to finish. You know, a lot of things start well and then they devolve into terrible things. Uh, everything's gonna be new and fresh in eternity. Sexually immoral means there'll be no horror stories of child sexual abuse, no rapes, you won't have to check a registry to see if your neighbor is a sex offender and wonder what's going to happen. Uh, and, and really, that's what the Lord is saying. It, there won't be any sexual immorality. Think of how dominant, from a Christian viewpoint, sexual immorality is in our world today and, and, and how it's encroaching on human society, not just as Christians, but on all of our society. And the Lord's saying, hey, that's going to all be done away with. We won't have to worry about that. Sorcerers won't be there. That may seem obvious, but I think it's good to mention. There's not gonna be any dark side, no sinister forces, no temptations by super intelligent demonic forces. You won't be lured off only to regret having fallen into error. Idolaters would refer to all false religious activity. You know how we like to say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship? Well, we will be able to fully experience freedom from religion in the future. We won't do anything from a sense of obligation or merit, only from love with a pure heart. Even today, as we emphasize grace and relationship... There's always a part of us that feels a a sense of duty or obligation or is doing things out of uh, merit or to be recognized. All of that will be done away and we'll just be in love with the Lord and in love with each other. Our motives will be absolutely pure and everything will be done out of our relationship. Liars, no reason for lying in heaven. Your words and everyone else's will be true. And this this has far-reaching effects, really, when you think about it. I mean, just think about just relationships in general. Uh, you you won't mind talking to people and have you ever go to the store and see that person that you don't want to talk to? Or maybe you are that person that people don't want to talk to. And, And and you have a tendency to lie by not looking their way, or you know, go to the other end of the store, hope you don't run into them. And to be honest, some are nice people. They just talk forever. They just want to keep talking. Oh, hi, how you doing? Yeah, I'm shopping. I'm, I'm really terrible about this because when I shop, I go to Walmart first. It's all right, don't, come on. And then whatever Walmart doesn't have, I get at Save Mart. But by that time, I want to get home for a lot of different reasons, but mostly because all my groceries are burning up in the car. I give myself a time limit at Save Mart. Man, if I see you at Save Mart, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I'll let you know. I'll say, hey, it's an okay day. But, you know, I'm not being rude. It's just like talking to you right now isn't as important as my chicken, my frozen chicken, you know, and stuff. I don't want to have salmonella, whatever that is. I thought it was a gangster at one point. Salmonella, I'll get you. But anyway... So you get what I'm saying? The Lord is saying, hey, I want to just tell you that life is going to be completely different in the New Jerusalem. Some of the things that really weigh you down now obviously aren't going to be there. And we think, oh, yeah, sure, I can figure it. But think about it. He says, I want you to think about what a world would be like if these things were absent from it. It would be wonderful. Non-believers rejected Jesus as Savior And in chapter 20, they were cast alive into the lake of fire. It wasn't because of their lying or their idolatry or their sexual immorality. It was because of their unbelief. Those behaviors uh, were evidence that they were not believers. Uh, We talked about the second death and the lake which burns with fire and brimstone in our last study. It was created for the devil and his angels to punish and incarcerate them for all eternity. Non-believers go there by choice, having rejected salvation in Jesus Christ. If you've been with us for our studies in the Revelation, you've noted our emphasis on God reaching out to lost sinners, not being willing that any should perish, but rather that they all would come to know Jesus. We saw the 144,000 Jewish evangelists sharing the gospel. They're sealed by God so that they can't be harmed, and they go around the entire time sharing the gospel. We saw two amazing witnesses who were unstoppable for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, performing miracles and wonders, sharing the gospel. We saw angels flying in the heavens, sharing the gospel to every part of the earth. We saw multitudes of martyred individuals, each one exuding a personal testimony of Jesus Christ as they gave their lives for him. God's efforts to save the lost during the tribulation are quite simply extraordinary. During the millennium, Jesus will be physically present on the earth in his resurrected body and resurrected saints will rule with him in their glorified bodies. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and still multitudes will refuse his offer of salvation. Once we are past the second death and the earth and the heavens are new, it will be wonderful to be free from the devil, his demons, and all of those who oppose Christ. Have you ever had a bad neighbor? Maybe you have one now. You won't have any bad neighbors in eternity. We lived in San Bernardino in a little house we lived in just before we moved here. We had a a creepy neighbor. He was kind of a peeping Tom. Well, not kind of, he was a peeping Tom. And uh, he claimed his mother lived with him. I caught a glimpse of her once through a window. It was all very Norman Bates-like. I mean, this guy was very creepy. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes you have bad neighbors, not so in eternity. But we're not to that point. And so our emphasis should be on enjoying the Lord so much that all bad neighbors will develop a thirst for the living waters that flow from Jesus through us to parched hearts ravaged by sin and the suffering and the sorrow that it causes. Let's pray together.